by this time I had written uh, a very long script. Came to the reality that I was going to have to cut this into three pieces. The Force is the core of Star Wars, and you have to be careful when you answer too many questions about it. And concept design, I think, is so critical. I mean, it's something that perhaps is underappreciated because it sets the template, it sets the aspirational goal for what the movie should be. We are already <laughs> rolling, Ken, so hit it. Excellent. So welcome to the forces behind Star Wars. Normally, when the three of us get together, we have this little playful warm-up, but tonight I'm going to introduce... Ken, myself, Anthony, and Demetrius. We have an amazing, legendary episode for all of you tonight. We have three wonderful folks that are going to talk about their experience in the, the, the galaxy of Star Wars. I'm going to kick it over to Anthony to introduce two of our guests, please. Jim Srengen, Tim Effler, and Tom Osborne from Srengen Osborne Design. These are also some of the original Star Wars designers from Kenner, a company that uh, we all love and miss. And it was a great company at Kenner Street in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I am really excited to have these on, these guys on as well. I've worked with these guys in the past. These guys are legendary, not just in their own minds, but in reality. Um, some of these guys have done the circuits before. They've spoken about Star Wars, uh, comic cons, you know, some of these guys are writing books, but the reason that we're having this episode tonight is because these guys, we want them to tell some of the answer some of the questions that they may not answer in any other podcast, right? And you can hear my excitement because I, I miss these guys. I miss those times. And one of the things as I get older, I start realizing that sometimes you've done legendary stuff and you've worked with legendary people that have done legendary stuff. And uh, it's rare that you get to celebrate those things. So again, Jim Srengen, Tim Effler, Tom Osborne, some of the best toy designers that the earth has ever seen. Um, and I'm really, really happy to have them on tonight. Me too. I have a particular extra connection with Tom because he was also a professor in college for a while. And then he changed roles at the University of Cincinnati and actually worked with my mom. So very weird, but almost like familial. So thank you all for joining. So Jim, can you catch us up on, can you give us a brief intro uh, into what you've done and what you're doing, and then uh, we'll 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 just do Jim, Tim, and Tom if you don't mind. Uh, well, I guess I'll start way back when I was at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, I graduated in industrial design and was lucky enough to have a company dump me for uh, another designer, and I went to work for Kenner Toys. Uh, 1972. So I'm the oldest one here. And uh, I've worked in, on a lot of projects at, uh, at Kenner. And when they formed preliminary design, I happened to be one of the designers they hired into that group. And uh, as far as what we're talking about tonight, Star Wars was my baby back then. I, uh, I was the first person to read the script and got to kind of lead that project at the very beginning, working with the model makers, engineers, and uh, other designers there in uh, 1977. So that's briefly how I got there. And now I'm retired. I Soda Design closed in 2007, and uh, I've been happily retired. And I'm on the Comic-Con circuit now for 
uh, I don't know, quite a few years now. I, so I make a presentation at Comic Cons. I sign autographs. That's my income now is autographs. But uh, and I meet lots of fans. You know, I'm 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 a fan of Star Wars fans and collectors. So it's it's a lot of fun to meet people and talk to them about their doing what they're doing in uh, this the Star Wars universe. So that's me. That's awesome. Jim. Thanks, Jim. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, inviting me to take part of this, but uh, your order of introduction is really wrong. It should have been Tom Osborne before me because I actually joined Tom and Jim after my uh, stint at Kenner Hasbro. To uh, They had already started Soda Design, and as Tom loves to say, I was the E of the effervescence that was added to soda. <laughs> so um, in any case, I also worked at Kenner pretty much the same time Jim did, although I was in the development group. So what Prelim did was turned over to me, and I had the fortunate opportunity to be um, in, uh, involved and or assigned the large uh, Star Wars figures at that time. I left, took a brief, brief sabbatical for three or so years uh, to Art Center and worked at Mattel before coming back. And at that time, I um, gained a little more uh, power in my position and had um, and had uh, basically the power over the the, uh, the message of Star Wars as it died out at Kenner. So that's my that's my Kenner Star Wars story. Um, I'm probably more more known for uh, being the as Jim was the champion of Star Wars. I was really the champion of Jurassic Park while at Kenner. Uh, since then, I um, ended up in uh, Atlanta, where I am now. I'm very happy to be here and uh, and um, retired currently. I still do a number of, uh, of consulting. Actually, I'm going to be speaking at um, Georgia Tech to their designers next week. And um, I'm assimilating my stories in maybe a book at some point in the future. So that's what I'm up to right now. Awesome. Hey, thank you. Cool, cool. And what about you, Tom? It's been a long time. Yeah, how you been? I've been okay. I've been all right. I, I, I can't complain. How about you? We want to know what you're doing. Well, um, I'll give you my history. I also went to the University of Cincinnati and actually we all three of us knew each other in college. And um, I graduated, I'm the youngest of the group, but I don't look it. Um, and uh, that's why you don't have I graduated, <laughs> I graduated in, what was that Tim was making I, fun I of it, you not being able to get the zoom working yeah well uh, I, I graduated in 75 and um, University of Cincinnati has a mandatory co-op program so I co-opted at Kenner um, for part of my co-op and then started there when I uh, graduated. I worked in a prelim group for five years and then was moved down to um, Boys Toys, um, I think. I don't remember exactly, but as a, and then became a manager of design and then uh, director of all uh, production design. And uh, then when Hasbro bought us, uh, I left and Jim left and we started Soda and then Jim joined us. And um, all this time while I was at Kenner, kind of pretty much of the time I taught at the University of Cincinnati where I had both you guys as, as students. 
and I'm retired now, but I still I'm still teaching um, at UC, teaching sketching and rendering, uh, mostly by hand, some digital, but mainly uh, hand sketching, still to uh, freshmen and sophomore students. Wow. Well, you've all but said the, that you've retired, but you're not really retired. <laughs> no, no, no. I can't. I couldn't. I I can't stand sitting around doing nothing, and it's been. Uh, it's been tough those last two. I'm actually recovering from a mild case of COVID right now, so I'm I'm going nuts sitting in the house here. Uh, uh, and I'm we're doing my classes on uh, online, you know. But uh, and we're not. I wish we were using Zoom, but UC uses Teams instead. So um, yeah, it's interesting trying to teach drawing and sketching, uh, you know, using a computer to, to the kids over in the school. Yeah, that would be tough, wouldn't it? I mean, that's uh, but it's good to hear that you have a mild case and it's not going to be any worse than that. So we're, I'm, you know, I, I can be a fanboy and say that I, I really thank you guys for helping me start my career. I mean, I think it was Tom that gave me my shot and uh, you guys are really, you know, you helped define my life. So I, I just, I never had the chance to really thank you guys, but thank you very much for helping me find a, a role uh, and some sort of goals in life that I, I don't know if I had before you guys. So thank you. I don't want to be too sappy. So Ken, let's go back to the show. Well, I do have some, some questions. We have some, some questions, but considering that all of you worked on Star Wars, would you consider yourselves fans of it? And if so, what do you feel so connected to beyond the toys? What is it about Star Wars that you're connected to? And we'll go, uh, we'll go Tom, Tim, Jim. We'll go the other way this time around. Uh, I am not. <laughs> I mean, I... <laughs> so simple. No, what? I mean, I, I, you get I, along better with my wife than me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, as my partners know, I'm a fan of the Indianapolis 500. And that's yes. my a lot of stuff. But no, I, I, I mean, I like Star Wars, but I'm not. I'm not a fanatic or crazy about it or anything like that. Uh, uh, but uh, not as much as you would think since I worked on this stuff. So no, not, not particularly. <laughs> I appreciate that. Honestly, that's awesome. So any of you guys fans of the, I mean, I know Tim, you and I talk about Star Wars quite a bit back in the day. Are you, or Jim, you and, and Tim fans of the property? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm a fan. I, I, um, I've fallen off, um, a little bit recently i mean i was in the Mandalor mandalorian for example i watched you know the first three five episodes whatever it was and i just it just didn't hold me but i still love the the notion i love the i love the fact uh, that george lucas created this universe that can be so diverse and can hold so many stories and that's what i love about it and i and, and you saw that from the start what george really did was created a universe and for store and for toy designers um you know we love to tell our stories too and we had the opportunity to tell our stories with some of the toy ideas we had too so i think that's the great part of of star wars that this open universe that allows for so many stories to be told and i really love that that's yeah, awesome. i was gonna say Jack. i agree <clears throat> yeah i well i'd agree with what Tim said that we, I still am a fan of Star Wars more so now than probably the, the interim 
between designing the stuff, but um, the fans that are real fans and collectors and stuff have some, you know, great things to to talk about. I uh, and I, you know, people ask me if I like the movies, you know, the new ones and the old ones. And it's yeah, they're they're all. I, I enjoy seeing them. I watch them. I do have to confess, I do kind of watch them every once in a while. I have the iPad running while I'm doing something on on the in my office. But um, and now that uh, I'm an invited guest to Comic Cons, it's kind of brought back all the the good old days because it really it was really heady stuff for me because uh, back in 1977, I you know had. I kind of knew George Lucas from before he did Star Wars a little bit, saw THX 1138 when I was in college. And then to have that come in and the, the script come in and get to start working on it. And now being, you know, having people come up and ask for my, for my autograph, it's pretty heady when you're an old man. But, um, and I do, I enjoy being around the people, you know, I, was down in Georgia this year and Ohio had a, an event last year that I went to. So it's it's fun to see how really involved uh, people, adults come. I don't think it's unusual for two adults to meet in the toy aisle at Target necessarily. Thank you. <laughs> because the only people you see in, this, in the toy aisle at Target, at least my experience is usually men over 18 for sure, um, looking to see if there is anything they haven't got in their collection. So it's, there's very few toys. It's, I'm amazed that they don't make really toys anymore because nobody plays with this stuff. They take it home and put it on the shelf. So it's, uh, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, we were designing toys for kids to play with, not you know collectibles for old guys to put on a shelf so it was, it's a real different time so and that's an awesome kind of question that leads into my question is you know you guys actually set the stage for a lot of us to want to go into toys right we wanted to become toy designers because we played with star wars toys i'll never forget my first job and i've told the story before but working with steve geddes the sculptor and i had a tauntaun on my shelf and i'm 25 years old and he comes and he picks it up and he shows me where he'd carved his name into the tail of the tool and i could see geddes written in the fur and it just blew my mind i had that thing since i was eight years old so and i'm now i'm working amongst them it's amazing what what drove each of you guys to want to become a toy designer? Did you know it coming out of school? I'd love to know what, what got you started. Well, I, I can certainly address that um, a little bit in, in terms of my position on that. Actually, at the time, and I think even to some extent now, um, maybe not so much now, but uh, toy design was really um, like a second tier, uh, like almost a non-legitimate um, career choice for industrial designers. I, you know, I think most industrial designers come out of school and they want, in my, in my generation, Jim and Tom's generation, we wanted to work for, uh, you know, the big consultant office firms, you know, Raymond Lowy and, uh, you know, <laughs> Henry Walker. Dreyfus and those yeah, guys. Dreyfus and Teague and all those. And that's where we wanted to be. We wanted to be doing, we wanted to be changing the lives of people in, in terms of re reality and real things, you know, 
And toys was just like um, this stuff that uh, kids played with and it was thrown away. It wasn't it wasn't serious product. And um, you know, and and I really wanted to work for uh, one of these high powered industrial sign offices. And in fact, I was offered a job by Walter Dorwin Teague, I believe it was, to work on the Russian tractor account. And I mean, I'm I'm like, holy crap, that's real world stuff. That's really cool. And then they passed on me because they had somebody in New York who happened to just be in New York, and they didn't want to pay me to, to, you know, to relocate. So I'm like, screw you guys. And well, Henry had an opening, so I took it. So it wasn't my first choice, you know, uh, you know, you know, and Tom, I, you know, Tom will tell you this when people would ask Tom what, his, what, what he did for a living. I love Tom's quote on this. He used to sell, tell people he was in the landfill business because that's where most toys ended up. You know? <laughs> I always love that comment. He had. You know, so the toy line didn't work. It was just plowed under in some landfill. And it was very true. And toys were made cheap because they were only, you know, designed to last for a year or less. And the kid's going to break them anyhow. And they had to be cheap enough for the parents to be able to afford. So it was a, it was a secondary, you know, consideration as far as product design goes. So it wasn't, it was, certainly wasn't my first choice. Um, I don't know how you guys feel, but that's where I was. Well, I. I got dumped by Richardson Smith, which was a big Columbus company. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I interned. They they dumped me the day after they found out my uh, draft number was sixty one, and they didn't want to they didn't want to invest in me. And they found actually a they went looking for their their second choice as soon as they found out the number. But for, really, I think yeah, for I, some of our younger viewers who may not understand that, so you're saying that you basically had a draft number for the Vietnam War, and they didn't want to take the chance that they would hire you and you would be shipped off to fight. Right. They didn't want to. That take is crazy. But actually, it turned out it was it was probably the best thing that happened because same in here. Hindsight, same here. Oh, best thing. Yeah. The, the toy business uh, offered you there. Were, there was something new all the time happening. You know, the toy line that Kenner put out one year, half of it would be gone by the next year. So you had to come up with new products and they were always doing things that were innovative. You know, they were looking for, you know, it's Stretch Armstrong or Baby Alive and all that stuff. So it was an exciting place to, to work because it was so fast. I mean, they were looking for stuff all the time. So they would entertain you know, kind of crazy ideas and stuff. So if, you, you know, could be, but I think, you know, I had the experience of working at General Motors and I worked at over in Europe for a little bit on one on co-op at from UC. And in the end, I ended up with a career that was much more fun and, and, you know, energizing than anything I would have had, to, you know, how many toasters can you invent or, you know, it's that kind of stuff or, you know how many more taillights can you come up? You know, come up with. Although they're getting better this now, so taillights are more exciting. I but agree. That, yeah, it was a really, it was a great, uh, great run, and it was fun to do. You know, so people that poo-pooed it back then is more because it's kind of, you know, it's kind of well, it's for kids, you know. But uh, in the long run, it was the best thing that ever happened. I agree. The freedom we had was amazing too as designers within that within the toy industry. Unbelievable. Yeah. 
What do you think, Tom? What made you go into toy design? Well, I wanted to design taillights. <laughs> 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 that's awesome. That's true. <laughs> well, I I, uh, I wanted to be a car designer, uh, and that's I originally wanted to go to art center, but uh, uh, couldn't do that because the expense and everything. So, uh, and I had already co-op three times at Kenner, so I knew everybody there, <clears throat> and uh, uh, I, I think Tim had already been hired, and uh, so Tim was uh, and Jim was there, so they were already there when I got there, so. It, it was just kind of a natural thing. I was, uh, you know, dating my wife at the time, and so she was still in town, and so everything kind of just fell into place. And uh, I never really grew up wanting to be a toy designer, although I had, I can still remember playing with Kenner's girder panel and Spirograph and stuff when I was a little, but um, it just sort of fell into place. Yeah, and you probably designed. You probably designed way more cars in the toy industry than you ever would have in the automotive industry. Uh, yeah, because my first product uh, was, uh, was a, a line called TTP Turbo Tower of Power, which is a we pumped these cars up and it had a gyro wheel inside of them. And my first product that ever made it was a total car. You know that uh, that I found. I'm looking at one of one of them right now. It's in my office. And uh, Tim's right. I would never have had it do a total car ever in Detroit or wherever it might be. So you guys, so we used to have a phrase um, that was used a lot. And the phrase was uh, the word toyetic, right? So it, it was something that was, you know, we would look at something and say, well, that isn't toyetic enough and that needs to be more toyetic. Who wants to take a stab at describing what toyetic means <coughs> to the outside world? Jim, you should take that. Jim, you should take that. Tim or Jim? Tim. You. Tim, you. Oh, well, thank you, guys. <laughs> um, well, I think, uh, I, I believe, I, I want to say Bernie Loomis was the guy that um, invented that phrase, commenting on presentations were made that were made to him. I don't know. Jim might be able to confirm that or Tom. But in any case, it, it represents the idea that um, this artifact that you're designing or working on can be extended into some sort of fantasy um, in a way that kids would want to use it in this fantasy and come back to and keep using it. It has to do with the emotional play value of, of whatever the property is or whatever the content is that you're talking about. And I think that's that's how I see toyetic, which which is a good term, really. It's it's you know, and Kenner being a company that became um, really known for identifying licensed properties. That's what we did. We dug down, we drilled into those properties and saying, is there toyetic content that can be extracted from this and turned into real toys? And, um, and, and so I think that's, that's what I see in the term, the fact that you can translate whatever you're looking at into something that um, will pique a, a, a child's interest in, in some sort of continued fantasy play. I don't know. That makes sense. Whatever. That makes perfect sense to me. And I, I'm the, I'm the recipient of that year after year after year. I mean, I, I still buy the, the toys and, and play with them. And even there are people now who, who, who make a living taking these toys 
and then taking photographs of them and selling calendars and postcards and, and stuff. So even today in, in 2021, folks are, are playing with these things that were made back in the, in the, in the seventies and still getting fun and excitement and creativity out of them. It's, it's absolutely amazing and wonderful. You know, to Jim's earlier point about toys and what happens to them now, and you talk about companies like Funko and um, what they do. Those aren't toyetic toys, as Jim related. Um, toys today, to me as well, have become room decor. And, um, you know, you can get a much better play experience playing in the digital world than you can with these three-dimensional artifacts that we used to design. So I think that toyetic is not necessarily a necessarily component of analyzing um, the usefulness of, a, of what you're doing in a toy company these days, which is unfortunate, you know? It's, it's you know, like Funko is, is really all about just room decor to me. Nobody plays with that stuff. I don't know, tell me differently. You guys probably buy that stuff, so tell me differently. Yeah, someone wasn't even taken out of the box. Because <laughs> like you said, they're decorations. We, col we collect 16 of them or whatever. Yeah, they've gone from being things that you actually play with and nick up. You know, I look at all the Star Wars that I had from when I was a kid and all the spaceships, the, the labels have peeled off because they went in the bathtub. You know, the capes are missing. The guns are missing. As an adult, when I was buying them, they stayed intact in boxes. It became a whole different experience. So I totally get it. I, I, I agree. They've lost the actual play component. Play doesn't define their success any longer. Right. And given all the time that you spent, you know, working on, on toys and, and creating imaginative things, what do you think the weirdest experience that you had while doing that? <laughs> oh, that question. I don't think we is can this one of those that. ones that'll get them in trouble? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the things we did when I worked for the Nerf team on my internship. <laughs> should never be said on a podcast <laughs> well you guys get to decide how weird we go <laughs> well no this is this is really uh way back well when i was when i went to the dark side and was in went into the marketing department oh boy the weird the weirdest thing that well there are two weird things one one i'll tell was that we were making every year every you know, we'd have to have one big meeting with the General Mills boards, the the president of General Mills and all his minions would come to uh, see what this weird toy company that they had purchased was doing. And uh, I don't know where it was I, in the middle, but you're so we the product managers had to bring things out and tell them what was going on and talk about the numbers and all that stuff. And I remember making a presentation, one of many on strawberry shortcake. And because I was her product manager for five years and I came out and they'd seen it before, you'd seen the line before, but you still have to talk about, you know, here's the new, you know, this is the new thing we're doing. And the chairman of the board was dead asleep. <laughs> and it, it was, and nobody would say anything because he's the chairman of the board, but you still had to make the presentation and having somebody practically dead at the table was a really, uh, just a really strange situation. You just kept going. It's like, 
ignore the fact that that guy's paying absolutely no attention, but you have to do it anyway. So that was one. And uh, I think the other one related to Star Wars, not weird, or it wasn't really a weird thing, but uh, I had the, uh, I had the uh, pleasure and the honor of seeing Star Wars on the 1st of May of 1977. And I was the only one from Kenner that went along, you know, so I'm all by myself to see the very first audience that would see Star Wars. And it was a great movie. People loved it in the, in the theater. But the weirdest part of it was I then had to, I didn't have anybody turn to and say, did you see that movie? Did we see the same movie? Because I, that's incredible. And while everybody's filling out their market research stuff, I went out and had to find a payphone and call back to Cincinnati. Say, you know, call back to Cincinnati and say, I, I can't tell you how incredible this movie was, except that people jumped out of their seats when the Death Star blows up. So it's, it was that kind of, you know, that was, you know, an experience that nobody else got to have at Kenner. And I, to this day, it's like, I can't believe I actually got to do that. You know, and the marketing people were still back home trying to figure out whether they should spend the money or not. So. Was that the screening that had a secret name? Like it was didn't called, have the... Yeah, it was called Alaska on the, on the uh, marquee outside the, the uh, theater. They, and when they did the market research, they just did it by male, female and different age groups. So they had a complete audience, and then they were told they were coming to see a, a you know, a private screening of Alaska. So it, it, that was kind of misleading people as a word. So it probably built the uh, the audience up going in, and then you know how things started it was real different. So, but that those are two. One, the dead, the guy <laughs> falling asleep in my presentation. He was so interested in what I was telling him. And then getting to do that at Star Wars. So it was pretty fun stuff. Now, help us connect the dots because I, it's almost hard to imagine a time before Star Wars toys. There had to be a moment in time where you said the script comes in, there's someone talking about it, it gets approved that, yes, we're going to do this. But, like, where do you start? How on earth did you guys even start to create a toy line from Star Wars? Take us back, if you don't mind. That's, that's Jim's area. Jim did it all at the starting time. Um, the the some of the stuff I did up front, uh, they the uh, the company, I think Craig Stokely and, and Dave Okada got pitched by Mark Pevers from 20th Century Fox, and they were trying to sell Star Wars, and they'd been turned down by everybody else. So they were they were kind of desperate to find a toy company that would work on it. Because even Mego had turned them down after they did uh, Planet of the Apes, so they were, but um, so they brought back the script and a black a book of black and white photographs, and that's where we started. And Dave brought it into the into the uh, studio and said, "Who wants to read this script called Star Wars?" And I was like, "Star Wars," because <laughs> I had read uh, Starlog magazine. There's a four paragraph article in the November issue the second issue of Starlog. And it said that George was working on a 
film with uh, 20th Century Fox called Star Wars. So I already knew, so it was like in the back of my brain, you know, and I'd seen THX 1138 and American Graffiti and the script came in. So I got to capture that as my project, uh, kind of leading leading the thing and did uh, most, of the, most of the early presentation renderings that we did, you know, pen and ink with marker of the, the first figures and the X-Wing and TIE Fighter. And then there were other people that worked on stuff. And uh, we made our first presentation to, Luca, to uh, 20th Century Fox and Lucas in March. So it was February at Toy Fair where they, they saw something. And then uh, after, you know, they came back from Toy Fair and that's when I started working on stuff. So I, I had uh, kind of the base figures did renderings and then the, did the X-Wing and TIE Fighter that were based on some snapshots that they sent us because they didn't have scrap available. And then uh, we brainstormed other stuff for people, you know, other people were working on stuff. But the first presentation was, made in March and included figures, the figures that figured they had, you know, we had to have it small because we saw X-Wings and TIE Fighters and the Millennium Falcon as the toys. The figures were really just, you know, a means to get, you know, somebody to pilot them, the ships. And then uh, after that first presentation in March, I went out to ILM, the first, out to Lucasfilm when they were at Universal Studios in April. We figure it's the 4th of April because um, I got there and got to see stuff. I got to pull drawings from Joe Johnston and uh, asked for photographs and you know, kind of made up a list of things I wanted and then got to go out to the ILM studio and see, actually see the X-Wings and TIE Fighters uh, they were, because they were still working on uh, special effects. And the only reason I know the date is that the line, if you watch the Toys That Made Us, that line in the very beginning that uh, you should have been here yesterday, they, we were blowing up the Death Star, actually was said, I mean, that's the one line that they said to me because, and that places it in time, is that the day before they've been blowing up the Death Star models out in the parking lot. So, but we made a lot of presentations back and forth. The, the uh, May 1st and was the first screening I saw. And then May 2nd, I saw it again in LA with the press. And then things got rolling, you know, middle of the middle of May, you know, it was like they did bring in all the designers and engineers and model makers and started working on stuff, really uh, making things happen. So, you know, there's a story about Bernie Loomis saying, you know, make them this big, you know, the three and three quarter, make them this big is a, I don't recall, I wasn't in that meeting. And it just so happens that the figures that I used to mock up the first models were three and three quarter inches tall. So the adventure people from Fisher Price, we use those to hack together some models that we could turn over to production people, so. But that's a very early start. And then after, after May, then it was, you know, we were doing all kinds of stuff and the production was taking over, uh, you know, 
the actual detail work of really making the product line, you know, putting it really together. I, I, I made a lot of lists and made a lot of requests with Lucasfilm, but it was, uh, you know, I, I was a lead, I was the liaison with Lucas until they actually had a product manager that was uh, working on stuff, and I got to see a lot of stuff. So, that's awesome. That's, that's incredible. Well, let me ask you guys this. So, so to put Star Wars into context for Kenner, because Tim mentioned before that Kenner was known for IP development or taking IP and making it into toys. Was was Star Wars an anomaly? Was it what were meaning that you had IP before? You mentioned Planet of the Years, and I, Tim, you did. Uh, you got all of you guys did uh, uh, Six Million Dollar Man. Um, there's a lot of properties that went in and out of counter Jurassic Park, Batman, Aliens. Where was Star Wars unique, or were there other properties that kind of came close to Star Wars before or after? But was Star Wars really so, the best one for, for toys? We had been working on, we would look more at toy uh, TV properties earlier. You know, we were looking at stuff like that because they were guaranteed kind of 13 week or 26 week runs in the fall, you know, around Christmas. Toy, uh, Star Wars was different in that it was a movie. And that's the reason, that's one of the reasons it got turned down by so many toy companies. Because it was a toy, it was, it was a, a movie that was science fiction, and it was opening in May, which, you know, we were looking at in February, March, and uh, we knew that we weren't going to have good product out until the next year. And the idea of a movie lasting that long was really outrageous. You know, nothing had lasted that long. It changed the way. Uh, properties like that were marketed, you know, you, the, uh, all the Marvel stuff and superhero stuff was all pre-sold after that, you know, they were, it was a lot easier to sell them in because they could say, well, we're going to do, you know, millions of dollars of advertising and uh, you can, you know, you can kind of bank on it. And I think Tim can speak to this a little bit because Jurassic Park was one of those where everybody said, ah, it's another dinosaur. Nobody will want to play with the dinosaur. And he really championed that. And it was one of the things about Kenner that if a designer wanted to, was really passionate and kept beating on it, they would finally let him have it. You know, they'd go with it. So. Yeah, to follow up on uh, what Jim was saying, um, I think first and foremost, you know, I think Kenner's known for these properties that we identified and built product lines on, whether it was Ghostbusters or, oh yeah, you know, or Star Wars or Jurassic Park. You, you pick whatever one, and we had a really good success at identifying these things. But first and foremost, uh, Kenner's um, real goal was to develop their own IP. I mean, you, you talk about, we had a preliminary design department and that preliminary design department had inventors embedded in it. George Giordano and Charlie Cummings, these guys, they were, they were assigned to come up with, I mean, Kenner was, had invented, you know, uh, you know, things like Baby Alive and, and uh, Play-Doh and, uh, uh, you know, Easy right. Bake Oven, things like that. That's really what we wanted to do. We didn't want to, we didn't want somebody else controlling our destiny, but we were, we were smart enough, uh, the management was smart enough to know, hey, whatever it is. In fact, we had 
it's really three prongs. So we, you know, first was to come up with our own content and to see if that would work. And, and we were somewhat pretty successful in that. The, the second was <clears throat> to uh, also um, have relationships with the professional inventor community so that we could mine whatever ideas might be happening <clears throat> outside our, our walls. And then third, what's going on, you know, in the entertainment industry that we could mine there, whether it's animation, uh, TV show or movie or whatever it might be. So the, it was really a three-pronged thing. And, and what gets the notoriety is really the, the, um, the kind of pop cultural uh, big, big names like the Star Wars and Jurassic Parks and Ghostbusters and so, so forth. But I, I think that you'd find internally, we were just as hell bent on coming up with our own stuff as we were developing or identifying properties outside the company. Tom, you mentioned that you weren't really a big Star Wars fan. I mean, were there any properties that weren't, I know that you love cars and NASCAR, were there any properties that you took to at Hasbro that you worked on? I'm sorry, were there any what? Properties at Hasbro that, that either you developed yourself or that were licensed that you felt were your favorite properties that you worked on for toys. Well, I thought... <clears throat> I thought some of the best work was done on ones where we were inventing stuff like Star Wars. They were, you know, pretty much doing things during the movie, but with like Ghostbusters coming up with vehicles and, and, you know, the toilet with the tongue and things like that. Uh, I, I think that was where it kind of really shined a lot and mask, which was a, a oh, tremendous yeah. one uh, with, uh, and of course that was all vehicle. I love those uh, toys. And, yeah. and uh, and that was a great one to work on and 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 i think uh because i was a car guy and, and uh, that was done in prelim originally howard bollinger's group and then it came down to me and uh, i think um, because i was a car guy that made a lot of sense and i think we did a pretty nice job on that so i think when we uh, had our own product lines or product lines where we had to invent things uh, norris was another one um uh, that we put a lot of action in, into the figures, but uh, um, the, the Ghostbusters, especially those figures are so cool. The fright features that were on them, and we kept challenging the en engineers to uh, to you know take them to the max and just do better than the next figure being better than the last figure. Uh, Tom, so don't I, I think those were those were more fun. Into some ways, they were more. Uh, Star Wars is really um, you know doing replicas. To some extent, uh, where the rest of the line didn't weren't as toyetic, so we had to invent toys that were coming that could be in the line, so or could have been in the movie. So I think that was a that was a real fun part of it. Tom, I thought one of the best things that your team did was um, the development on Swamp Thing. You guys did really some great stuff. Your team did some great stuff on that. I think that was some great stuff. Well. Thanks. I don't know if I remember much of it, but uh, <laughs> but it was all your. As I recall, it was your team because we weren't doing. It was like it, you you took control of that. Your team took control, of it. and it was kind of along the lines of, you know, what we did with Ghostbusters and just extrapolating into all these kind of fun toyetic ways you can, uh, crazy things you can do with with the theme. You know, basically, I thought it was yeah. really great. If you remember, Tim, the way it was set up was you guys we get a property in or you develop a property and you would do the first year of it generally and then turn it over to us for production work and then for the second year 
often we would do the co- concept work and you would be, cause you guys would be working on the next new product. Right. Um, so that was great. Cause we got to do production work and my guys got to do some uh, of their own uh, preliminary design, if you will. Right. Um, but that made a lot of fun too. Right. Were the teams ever competitive at Hasbro? Did you guys ever jealous or envious of, the, of another team? I never oh, I think... worked at Hasbro. I mean, Kenner, <laughs> sorry. You know, Kenner. I think it was all good competitive, you know? Like, you know, we were always fighting. Uh, when I was in the development group and Jim was in prelim, we were always fighting to do preliminary, come up with our own stuff and and show that we could do that too. And 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 we had a voice that way. You know, the, the walls were never completely solid. And um, we had the freedom to do that. And, and um, I think that was the great part about it, you know? Well, with that in mind, I mean, you guys, you, you, all, you all seem very fond of all the experiences that you had doing the work that you did. What would you say was the greatest experience working there? Like if you had to put it on that shelf of this was the greatest thing that we ever did, got to work on, got to experience. I think it's the people that, that were there. It was very much a, uh, this sounds cliche, but it was very much a family. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it was just the best place you could work. I think the, I knew it then when I was there and when I left, it was the best place I would ever work. And, uh, you know, it was just, everybody was, knew what they were doing and pushing for the same results. And uh, I think it was a great, it was just a great environment. We had great leaders uh, for the most part. And uh, you know, Jim and I worked for Dave Okada, who, uh, who I just adore. He's still around. He lives out in Manhattan Beach. And uh, he was a, I learned so much from him. He was, uh, my father died when I was in high school. So he kind of became uh, one of my father figures for me. So um, I think it was the people more than anything else. Do you guys agree with that kind of? Yeah, I too had my, my mentor there was Howard Bollinger and he was like, he was amazing to me. He, um, yeah, I mean, he inspired me and gave me uh, so much freedom to chase the things that I thought were worthwhile chasing and support me. And, uh, you know, he was, he was my cheerleader. He was basically a big cheerleader, you know, like I'd walk into his office and he'd go and I'd say, Hey, what do you think? And he'd go, 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 go. And he'd say, I'd be walking out of there in a cloud, you know, and that was really great to have that for them. You know, most, most of the times he was pretty much like that. And I learned a lot, a lot, I really learned a lot uh, uh, from him and how to, you know, manage the creative process and really not manage it to, to make sure you keep your hands off of it as much as you might want to keep your hands on it and um i think uh that that's ser- that's her has served me well as a as a manager uh through the, the uh, balance of my career as i went other places do you guys think that you understood the scope of how historic it was back then. I mean, not just Star Wars. There was a line, uh, you know, when I joined, when we, at the end or the middle of Jurassic Park, Hasbro Kenner was legendary. I mean, there were some things, Transformers, G.I. Joe. um, But we, from what I remember, it was a job, right? It was a fun job. We took it seriously. But do you think that 
when you were there or, or when did you realize is a better question that this was something that was an important historical moment that people would remember and and like jim said ask you for autographs later on down the road or was that just like two minutes ago when i <laughs> started that question that was a slow burn that was a slow burn i think uh yeah i mean even when you realize it, you go, that's not real. That's, that's somebody's pumping you or whatever. And it, it's a slow burn to realize the impact uh, that the stupid little things we did had, you know, impacted people's lives now, you know? Yeah. I, <clears throat> there was no, there was nothing that would say, you know, the toy line was ever going to be <clears throat> a cult culture. You know, it's like, now it's uh, back then. It was it really we were designing toys and working on projects. When I went into marketing, I was working on toys from a different angle, so I had a lot different experience. And then came back into design some. So I've gone back and forth. But uh, the good thing, while it was a Kenner, it was that it was more. I think we worked more closely together than some of the other companies. Now I worked for Hasbro for a couple of years in between my jaunts at uh, Kenner and um, it was a little different. It was a different kind of atmosphere. And I, I think yeah. when they merged the two companies they changed radically, it became radically different. So much more, the corporate part of Kenner kind of took over the Hasbro part. But Hasbro was bigger, right? A bigger company took over the smaller company. Yes. Yeah. Kenner had been through a couple of those because at one point, uh, Mego wanted to buy Kenner and they did a sweetheart deal with uh, Tonka and Tonka, which was much smaller, bought Kenner so that Mego couldn't take over the company because at the time, Kenner had a lot of money and they looked at that as a cash cow they didn't get nego didn't get them that would have been a disaster i think for, the interesting, I, I think one of the interesting aspects of uh, the management side of things is the fact that <clears throat> hasbro bought kenner and then kenner essentially took over hasbro the management team even some of the people who are still there were original kenner people and i think that's a testament to um to the talent, especially on the management side and, and on the design side that, uh, that that happened. Yeah, a guy that was a buddy of mine when I was a co-op, he was like two years older than me, just out of school, Brian Chapman. He's been like a VP or head of design at Hasbro for years. I mean, he's been there since the early 90s. It's crazy. Okay, so I want to see if I can get you guys a little bit competitive here, because, you know, from a fan perspective, we could say, well, Star Wars toys are the greatest toy line in the history of toys. Um, you guys might have different opinions, but we still know they are iconic. So I'd love to know from your perspective, do you believe it's sort of the most iconic toy line in the world? If so, like, what was it about the Star Wars toys that just sort of shifted everything and the, others have tried to follow in the footsteps that have not been as successful? Well, jealously, I think Star Wars is the biggest franchise and made it the longest. I think what part of it is that uh, the 
it had longevity with the kids that started collecting or that were playing with the stuff. They really took, it took on, you know, it became uh, a real world for them to kind of fantasize with it. And as they grew up, they could live it through the movies and then the books and things like that. But um, the closest thing to it in boys is uh, G.I. Joe, which uh, has been around longer, but the product lines haven't gotten any better than they than that. And the, uh, on the girl side, Barbie is still there, but not nearly what she used to be. And there there aren't any lines that have translated where, you know, when you go to a celebration or to Comic-Con, you'll see dads with their sons and daughters. There's some families, you know, see some, you know, whole family with a husband and wife and their kids and they dress up and get into the fantasy that way. And uh, there's just nothing has done that yet. You know, nothing's really had that same effect. There's lots of cosplay in DC and stuff, but I don't think that's tied to the toys as much as Star Wars, but it's, uh, and at the beginning, nobody knew what it was, you know, Kenner offered him $50,000 and 5%. It was like, if it didn't fail, if it failed, they wouldn't have been out very much money. So nobody knew what they were up against. I mean, there's some people now that think, well, I knew Star Wars was going to be great, you know, from the time I, you know, I saw it. But it was, uh, it's had a, it has a bigger impact because, you know, kids grew up with it and they kept, putting out movies probably every three year or three years was a good idea now that now it's you know they can't wait six months before something else like mandalorian came out and then uh december they've announced that they're going to bring out boba fett so the the disney part of star wars is really now pumping stuff out all the time you know it's but it's uh it's part of the, now it's part of the fabric of America, you know, it's like cotton. You have to be, you have to be, uh, you know, you have to be a, you, you're either a Star Wars fan or you don't really care, so it's, but. Or you're a Star Wars this, fan and you hate each other because uh, on the internet, it's, it's great. It's uh, cool to hate things now. <laughs> yeah. I think the, uh, I think the real interesting thing to me is you be in your doctor's office and the doctor will say, what'd you do for a living? And he tell, oh, I was a toy designer at Kenner. And then the conversation goes right to Star Wars because your doctor played with them. <laughs> and uh, some ways that makes you feel really old, but um, it seems like whenever you're out and people find out that, and I'm talking about adults, not kids, find out that you worked on Star Wars, a lot of times that's what they want to talk about then because that's, they grew up on them and, and uh, it's, you know, reminiscing with them is part going back and reliving their childhood a little bit. So, but I think Star Wars succeeded toy wise because it was the most toyetic and still probably is the most toyetic thing ever. You know, everything about it was, had toy implications. Well, I, I, I think Lucas, Lucas was a big kid, you know, he was just, when we presented, I had, I was fortunate enough to present stuff like uh, the other two guys were to Lucas several times. And he really, he understood things right away. He, to me, he was really 
in his mind was really in line with the designers. Not he wasn't too much with the business guys. At least I didn't think so. And he really had a toyetic mind. So he put he almost. It was almost like he was putting these things in the movies because he knew they would be good toys. I'm sure that's not the case, but uh, he, he just had a good, good creative mind for doing neat things that would become neat toys. I think to one of the things that Jim said is that it is Star Wars and, and Marvel are more inbred into the society now than they were before. I, you know, I, I'm as big a Star Wars fan as anyone else, Ken and, and Demetrius as well. But today it seems to be that that alternate lifestyle, the idea of fantasy as being maybe your second life has grown. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the idea that that, that the kids today raised on an interactive video, video games, something I presently do. And I, most of my career is related to video games after toys. Um, do you guys think that kids today are missing something, not playing with toys? And, and what do you think about what Hasbro is doing now? It'd be good to get all your takes on all three of you guys to see what you, you think of that topic. Well, I'd like to follow up on that last uh, thing about uh, Star Wars and uh, where Jim and Tom were talking about. And uh, my perspective, as, as you're talking, you're talking about this, this um, monolithic, avalanche of star wars and you know marvel uh as these cultural phenomena that's just drowned out everything else in our culture but um looking at it historically i look back at when we were all doing this and designing these things we worked uh during what i consider the golden age of action figures okay so um the things that i'm most proud of and i really think um kind of were the, you know, like all the, the apex of, of that development were, were really more lines like Ghostbusters with fright features. I mean, or even DC before that, where you're squeezing the legs and they're punching. That stuff was, that was to me, that's still mind boggling that we did that in these four inch figures or, you know, the, the eyes would pop out and the tie would go up on on Venkman or whatever. I mean, the, the degree of engineering and to make sure that stuff worked on a level that kids are, you know, can't abuse it. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's phenomenal that we put that kind of, or even Chuck Norris with some of the karate actions and stuff we did. That stuff to me represents what I would call the, or, or even, you know, our competitors, um, Ninja Turtles. I'll never forget the toy fair I went to and they were presenting the new Ninja Turtle line. And these figures, when they were activated, did a flip and then ended up ended up standing on their feet. You know, they would do go through this action and ended up on their feet. I'm like, this is just friggin' awesome to me. That was the golden age of action figures, you know. And and uh, you're never going to see it again. Nobody's going to put that kind of effort or or interest in into designing toys that kids play with. Uh, you know, like I said, I think it's all become room decor uh, and just the monolithic power of these. Um, of these uh, properties that, that dominate our culture are really going to prevent that kind of stuff from happening, I think, too, which is unfortunate. And, and, and the digital world, of course, which you don't, you don't need to do any of that stuff anymore. But to me, if there's ever any kind of uh, history done on the golden age of action theater, it's certainly going to take place during uh, our careers. You know, that's what you, I think, think. you think people are the kids today are missing out by not being able to play with toys or, or that 
something's different. Well, they're playing in a different way. The, the paradigm shift has, has moved away from the way we played with or the way kids. I, I'll never forget when Hasbro bought into the, um, you know, the episode one or whether, is that right? Or is that uh, whatever? Yeah. And, you know, the big, actually our company, Soda, we were, we were working for a number of companies doing pitches on that. We worked on, we worked on a Playmates pitch that they were developing to try to get the rights for themselves. So Tom, Jim, and I worked on that pitch, a Star Wars pitch from Playmates to acquire those rights as Hasbro was trying to do at the same time. Um, and then Hasbro ended up getting, and I just thought it was to some extent folly, which was my mistake because I couldn't imagine kids wanting to buy 40 action figures to set up the fantasy again because they could do it so much easier in, in, in video. You know, you, you don't need to have all those action figures. What do you have? What do you need 12 stormtroopers for? Well, you, you know, in 1985, you needed to set up the whole play premise, you know. But now you just go online and do it. You don't need that many figures. That, you don't need that many stormtroopers. So that that there's just been a paradigm shift created by the, the, the technology and digital world that that's play has moved away from that. Right, but, but do you guys think that that's a bad thing? I mean, do you, do you know, do you have an, I mean, it's just, just opinions, right? Do you think that kids today are missing something from not being able to use their imagination as opposed to playing with games where everything's already spilled out there in 4K, you know, you could add figures or add characters or DLC every other week. I mean, are we losing something? Yeah, I think we're losing something this way, the same way we're losing something when designers don't have to use pen to paper anymore. It's kind of a similar thing, you know? There's something about the tactile aspect of holding an action figure and then imagining it as opposed to watching it on screen and, and punching buttons to make it happen. I, I think there is something uh, critical uh, that uh, maybe it's being been displaced and found somewhere else, but I think there is a difference in the play and, and, and what that does to, uh, to the development of your uh, imagination. I, I know, Tom, uh, you've never been the biggest fan of technological inventions. You like the pen and paper um, what do you think about this topic? What do you, what do you, have you seen anything today that, that makes you sad or maybe do you think it's better today? Well, I agree with Tim pretty much a hundred percent that there's, I mean, tech technology and, and the games are unbelievable and, uh, you know, what computers can do. And, um, but I still think the tactile is, a, is very important. And we, we still teach a lot of, uh, pen or pencil on paper drawing first at UC. Um, and I think that's what UC is known for primarily still is a lot of uh, quick sketching and, hand, you know, hands on the paper and pencil on paper stuff. Um, I, I think, you know, I, we, Jim and Tim and I grew up in the age of model kits and, and, you know, putting things together and then blowing them up with BB guns or firecrackers or whatever. So, uh, which is very politically incorrect these days, of course, but um, I, I think there's something missing, uh, not un understanding the three-dimensionality of things um, and not understanding, uh, I, I guess, relationship of forms and things like that. Uh, but, you know, that's, it is what it is, so... 
I think I'm not very, you know, I'm not, as you know, Anthony, I'm a little more adept than I was when you were working for us, but uh, I'm still not very good on a computer, uh, as, as I demonstrated tonight. But anyway, um, I, I, it's, uh, I, it's I wonderful stuff, you know. Uh, my son's in the business, as you know, and he's quite adept at it, and and it, it's just uh, it's just the way it is. I just love, I just, I have really great memories of you cursing so often at computers all the time yeah, yeah. Very yeah. Funny. well jim what do you what do you think jim uh well uh, as far as kids having fun i you know i can't imagine they they can have as much fun as kids did when we were doing stuff because i there isn't much uh there there aren't there isn't enough competition in the toy business in sales that people are looking for new ideas. I I do go to Target, the one store I do go to, um, to look at toys and they, you go down the aisle and I, I have not spent much time in the girls aisle, which I, uh, to see what's going on there, but boys toys, there's just nothing there except, you know, there's a huge, I mean, the only area in Target that's really full of product is Lego and, that's uh, you know that's a whole different category of building stuff. I mean, I, there are kids that are doing a lot of that stuff, but the Lego sets are all basically model kits. They, you know, you, you get all the instructions and you build the. I think the last one I saw with the Star Destroyer, and you know, you spend. You know, I think the Star Destroyer was twenty five bucks, which was pretty reasonable for. A, a Lego, but um, other than that, I don't see kids, there's not much for kids to play with. There's some RC and stuff, but I just, uh, I think the, the kids that grew up with our stuff probably had more fun. And maybe that's why they drag their kids into it. Cause it's like, hey, I'll do this with you if you'll you know, get off your computer maybe. But uh, we're, we, we did have the most fun. I, I had lots of fun doing all kinds of stuff. It was, and, then, and back to one of the earlier statements is it changed all the time. You were never, we were never bored, but oh, not another toaster. We were, it's like, you know, whether it was uh, coming up a way to make ghosts out of plastic or uh, dinosaurs that actually were fun to play with. It really was a whole different kind of, uh, universe of toys than now and the replica stuff you know tom said landfill uh tim said uh you know room decor uh we weren't doing that we were making stuff that you could play with so it's a very different kind of for better or for worse it was a very different time i remember you know working with you guys and, and working at, at hasbro back then uh, right after you guys had left, I remember that it was a, it was an environment of creation. I mean, it was it was as creative. It, you you're out trying to out create everybody else, and it was fun. And I remember you guys making drawings and designs and criticizing mine because it wasn't fun enough, or there wasn't enough creativity, or there wasn't enough. You know, I didn't think through the possibilities. And and having worked in the software industry now, and having worked with Disney and other companies that are. And having worked in TV, 
Um, other than when we worked at Mainframe, that, that environment now is gone. It isn't about how creative you are. It's about when you can get it done. It's about how fast you can do it. It's about um, execution as opposed to ideas. And I don't know uh, if the video game world is, is ever going to be as fun as the toy world was, right? I mean, I think that era is gone, perhaps. Hopefully, it'll come back in some fashion. I don't know what, what motif or what media. Um, but I will say that working with you guys, seeing the passion that you had for the creation of fun, not for the execution of the toy, which is something you have to do, but you guys wanted people to have fun. That, in my career, and what I know about the interactive industry right now, seems to be gone, which is sad. And I will say that and, and second it for the just traditional product design because i was only in toys briefly I, I worked for warner brothers for three years i did my internship at kenner before that but the last 20 plus years has been in just consumer products there was never a time that was as creative as when i was working in toys or creative people as working in toys there were you had to always be thinking differently and i just you know, again can't can't thank you guys enough uh, for your contributions and helping us get better. Unfortunately, we don't have anyone else to pay it forward to since no one plays with actual toys anymore. And speaking of the creativity in toys, we had asked our um, our Facebook fr friends and fans if they had any questions for us to ask. And one of the questions that I, I promised to ask, and this is a, directly from my wife, when she found out that I was going to be talking with you guys tonight, um, she wanted to know what stories you had for these toys up here on the top, these alien figures, who was involved in the creation of the Xenomorphs uh, with Kenner? And um, so I'd really love just for a, a, a couple moments for you to, to, if you had a, some history around that, even though it's a Star Wars podcast. Yeah, well, um, you know, we did the big collector figure, but I was, I pitched um, um, the notion of doing an aliens line and I, I recall pitching it with the beautiful thing about doing Aliens. In fact, we had, the, the biggest problem was R-rated movie. There's no way if without some sort of TV version that would dumb it down for our age group that would, it was, was going to happen. But um, the, the wonderful thing about um, the Aliens concept that I presented was that unlike, let's say, G.I. Joe, where you're fighting Cobra, who, who are human, is that the aliens that you're fighting in this military scenario uh, you can blow them up. So we had, we had, I will never forget, we had a figure that you could push the trigger on and the, and the, and the figure would just disembody itself, would just blow up, which was so cool, you know, that you could actually kill something in a toy line. And um, it was a little bit before its time. <laughs> and and um, I remember that that was represented like a year later uh, by another uh, faction within the company. And at the time that I presented, it was kind of poo-pooed. And, and I remember one of the marketing guys standing up and saying, what was so cool about it a year later was the fact that you could actually destroy the figures. That, that's still fixing my head. That like, yeah, you know, you can blow up, <laughs> kill the aliens, you know, which, you know, was. Yeah, that's uh, a really good idea I had last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you, you know when we always faced um, that kind of, um, you know, concept, uh, or thought theft from some of the marketing folks that would they would try to take credit for some of the you know your own toy philosophy or on things like that you know but as i have I a good talk, alien story i have a good alien story okay let's hear it tom <laughs> <laughs> my wife 
that would usually get, uh, not usually, but would often get night terrors or very visual dreams where she'd see knives coming through the ceiling and stuff, which she, thankfully she doesn't anymore. That's because she's married to you. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Uh, yeah, you are the nightmare now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, but she, when we were first married, and uh, it's very vivid to her, and uh, would wake up, you know, and point to things. And so one night after she went to sleep, I got the tail off of the alien, the big alien, and hung it right over her head in bed. Uh, oh. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> and Wanda's she's always pissed at you. <laughs> she, she woke. She didn't. Uh, she woke up and uh, actually knew what it was, so it didn't didn't have the same impact I was hoping for. But uh, that's my alien story. <clears throat> yeah, my my only alien zing. I got to go to England to see the the sets for for Alien and met Kron's gear and. Uh, Jim Black and I went to look at the sets and stuff and then it came back and I actually recommended that we not do the alien because it was like, it's just too, too creepy. Uh, and I think the, the original alien, the only reason we did it was we wanted to be, keep, uh, keep on the, the premiere list for licensing for the uh, movie studio. But uh, the, the ideas that came after that uh, were much more imaginative and and more toyetic because all we did all they did was the 18 inch figure static figure so it wasn't nearly the toy that it could have been but at the time it was like and uh, you know Star Wars is still going on so people were kind of like well we'll just do this and keep the studio happy but the later on stuff the stuff that Tim did and uh, then got remade were a lot more interesting and fun, you know. The the small figures they did in the action figure line uh, that was done in the production area that was the characters from the original movie uh, that collectors are always looking for the hard copies from are uh, are out there. But that that the new direction that people were trying Tim tried to to take it were much more toy than than what we started out with, so. But I know a few alien collectors, that's a... Well, that big, the big one that you're talking about, that thing is, it's like a white whale with collectors. You get one of those 1979 Kenner Xenomorphs and some places are asking $1,500 for something like that. So it's, yeah. it's quite amazing considering what, I mean, what was it, 20 bucks back in, 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 the, in the 70s? Yeah, probably. My sister, my sister about, seven months ago uh was just telling stories uh about our childhood and she mentioned that i used to put the xenomorph it was it was just called the alien back then right it had this little plastic thing on top that uh, if you took it off the, the top of the head had, was painted in like glow in the dark paint and just to torture her because she always used to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night i would put it in the hallway <laughs> and um she peed herself one night because she refused to go past it and even today, she's 30, you know, she's almost 40 years old. She's like, God, I hate it when you did that. And I just thought it was funny. And if I recall right, I think it was Steve Geddes that sculpted it. Um, and he's actually not far of a neighbor for you, Ken and Anthony. He's in the Philadelphia area. So I have to see if he's got one of those still in his garage. 
That that'd be awesome. Yeah. So I, I get the, the, the lucky benefit of, of asking you guys our final question for tonight as we kind of wrap up our show. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the fact that your work, your efforts have had such an incredible impact on fans and culture. Because from what I understand, the sale of those toys ultimately helped George make more movies. So what is it like knowing that your effort had such a wide-ranging impact on so many people? Well, George doesn't know who the hell we are. I know that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Man, he, he might remember you, Tom. Me. You're you're memorable. Yeah, he never uh, thanked me. Oh, I don't know. I get a Christmas card from him every day. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get a Christmas card from Star Wars or from yeah, Lucasfilm. So you, you you guys may not, and I don't know whether George knows who you are, but um, I'm actually chatting with Hez Jorba, art director of uh, Lucasfilm, while I'm talking. And he he wants to say thank you guys for helping make my childhood a great childhood. Everything you guys did uh, was, was something I will remember forever and created who I am. It's something similar to what I said. Uh, That's Hess Chorba from uh, Lucasfilm. He's on uh, talking to him in chat right now. Tell cool. him thanks. Tell him thanks. Appreciate yeah. it. Tell him thanks. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's been a good year. On. It was a lot of fun. It still is. I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I had an hour alone with George Lucas and didn't ask him for a job. So that's, you know, you know my, I had my chance you know, just chatting with him, but it's been, it's really fun to see what everybody's doing with it. I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going to celebration. Thank you. I've I have my tickets. I never miss it. I've changed hotels about four times. I actually, I uh, booked rooms in Orlando in August, thinking that they would do it in Orlando, and then had to change them to Anaheim and change dates because they were going to do it in August and then May. It was like so. I can't wait to get back out there. It'll be fun to see everything again and see more people. So it'll be fun. I just um, want to say I feel fortunate uh, to have been gone to the right school been at the right place at the right time to work at Kenner and not just that but they have the freedom that I was given at Kenner to do the things I did so it's it's a combination of all those things and there's so many other places that I could have worked for uh, that uh, the opportunity might have been there but I wouldn't have had the freedom to um, address it the same way that Kenner allowed not just me but Tom and Jim to do that as well and I think that's that's really what made Kenner great and that's what I feel uh, fortunate to be part of. So Has has a question. This is a little unusual, but I'm going to ask this question. My question is, who designed the mechanics in Luke's Landspeeder X34? I love that little lever and the front push button that flips up the hood. Genius. Uh, Mike Connors. Mike Connors? Yep. Yeah. He died about. How do you know six that, Jim? How do you know that? How do you remember because he that? Did, he did. He did the first. Really? He wasn't there very long, but he he designed it. 
he did the prototype, came up with a rubber band suspension. So he just died about six months ago. Our, our, the original cast picture uh, is dwindling. There's people disappearing you know, all the time. I think Charlie Cummings is the only engineer. There are no model makers. Um, I'm trying to think of designers why well, Don England's gone, so he was gone. You know, so I was looking at that picture and it's like most of the people that did the very first stuff have all, uh, most of them are already gone. Bob Cordray and even, uh, I think Charlie's the only one left on the engineering end. So it's a, it was a good, good time to be there, so. So Mike also went to the University of Cincinnati, didn't he? Or Mike, Mike Connor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was he was way ahead of us. He was um, class of like sixty eight or nine. He he, and he didn't do anything really with industrial design. He had he uh, had a coffee house and sold <laughs> jeans. He did all kinds of stuff, and then came to Kenner just briefly, and then. Did the did the uh, land speeder and then left to go do his coffee house. So I remember he did the roll up arm on the six million dollar man too. Yeah, so he's there at the beginning of that. Stuff. Yeah, all these these little bits and pieces of the six million dollar man's probably the most team oriented product because everybody had something they contributed to it. So. Well, you had a, a magic piece of a six million dollar man, didn't you? You know the bionic eye. It's a peephole out of a door, <laughs> which then kind of got repurposed, right, for the Boba Fett twelve inch or the similar yeah, idea. Yeah. I didn't even realize they did that for a long time. It was like, oh look, they did that. So yeah, they put it in Boba Fett. Well, okay. I have a bionic mission vehicle still in the box, sealed from back then. Oh my god! How long are you going to keep that? Because you, you can always know. give it to us. You can yeah, it doesn't it have us. any college tuitions to pay for anymore. That thing's got to get sold, retired. It's got boats <laughs> to fund. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough to keep stuff like uh, Tim and Jim did. I did, yeah, I hardly kept anything. I have very little. I had a nice collection that was stolen, but we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, oh. we don't go there. We don't talk about those people. Uh, we can talk about forever. But look, guys, it has been a great night. It's been great to reminisce. I think, you know, in another podcast, we should talk about how the University of Cincinnati should get a lot more credit for the industrial design program that anybody ever gives it credit for, because uh, it, it sure launched a lot of imaginations and influenced a lot, a lot of different kids, including Haz, are still texting me that uh, you impacted one kid in a small town that creates worlds and characters for Star Wars today. I still dream about that toy, and it's one of my favorite toys of all time. Wow. So, awesome. It's, it's Anthony, were you there when George Hall was there? Yes. Yeah, he, well, he's, he's, ah, he's he did a lot of work talent. on June, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's coming out here in October, I think, or you gotta remember his senior show. Yeah. There's a, a couple other guys that are out there from 
that I that were I had in class that are in the movie industry now. Yeah, I think I think the UC should make a bigger deal of that, but they don't. You know, they really don't make a big deal about that at all. They don't have no. a lot of alumni sort of. Uh, you know, we work with universities now a lot, and there's a lot of you know heavy alumni references, but UC doesn't really do that very much, and they should because the, the the list of alumni would be just amazing coming out of that school. Yeah, they do virtually no no marketing for the ID program. Yeah, and, I, I, and, and is Gil still there? Is that what I saw? <laughs> I, I like, haven't seen Gil. He's still around, yeah, but uh, I haven't. He retired. Oh, he retired? Yeah, he's, he's not on the faculty anymore. He may come in to do demonstrations and some classwork, but. I mean, Gil was old for as long as all of us were in school. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? Anthony, you know what I always say? I wouldn't go to a college that would have me on the faculty. Yeah, and unfortunately, <laughs> I did. <laughs> well, normally we wrap up our show by going around the horn and saying who we want to who we want to thank because that's kind of the 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 theme of our whole podcast. And tonight it's gonna it's got to be different. And I I cannot put enough words together to thank the three who a for being on the show with us. I, I, I warned Anthony and Demetrius that I was gonna do my best to be reserved because I am dorktastically impressed by you guys more than I can accurately describe. So I wanna thank the three of you for impacting my life in such an incredible way. And if it wasn't for the work that the three of you did, we wouldn't be together tonight having this show. My family wouldn't have had the adventures that we've had around the country, and I wouldn't be goose bumpy on a, on a, on a, on a Zoom call with, with three amazing, well, five amazing people. So thank you for uh, just being amazing. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Is there any, any, any shows or appearances you guys are doing you want to talk about here before we go? I'm going to be in uh, near New Orleans on the 9th of October in Austin, Texas, uh, around the 20th of January. What about your Nashville show, Jim? That, that's already happened. No, next year, I mean. Nashville. Oh, Nashville. Yeah, well, I'll probably be at ICCC in Nashville. I'm thinking it's in May. Late April, May. Yeah, last yeah, week. Because I'm going to be in right? Yeah, we're all going to be there. I think we're all invited. Yeah, yeah it, it's, uh, yeah, we're, I'm working on getting Steve Geddes and uh, I think I've got Steve Geddes and another sculptor, um, not Nancy Moore. No, Bob doesn't want to do it. Bob Kling said no. I'm going to try and put together a sculptor's panel for the toy collectors in Nashville, because I think they make a good panel. But Steve and, uh, Steve and Nancy, is it Nancy Kerrigan that's in? Nancy. Flanagan. Flanagan. Flanagan and then Harrigan's, I think she's the, the, the skate ice skater. Yeah. Ice skater. Nancy <laughs> McCormick. But uh I'm trying to get I'd like to get a third one, but I haven't got a third one yet. Because Steve did a lot of the original stuff and so did uh Nancy. So 
anyway, so that that's what's coming up. How about you, Tim? You gotta, you gotta. I'm gonna be in Nashville, and uh, you know, uh, whatever happens in a, you know, in Atlanta, um, they have a toy thing. Usually, they'll have some toy thing, and uh, they had a couple of them last. Year. I don't know what's going on with COVID. Some of them haven't been resurrected since COVID, so I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but they have uh, an event down here that I think they usually do in mid-April, and we'll see if that happens again. Yeah, it's it's really iffy for all of it. Yeah, but I'm the New Orleans. They're doing masks and temperature checks and plexiglass screens and all kinds of stuff. So if I don't come back with COVID, <laughs> I keep hoping that they're going to say you can have a Moderna booster in time for me to get it before I go to uh, New Orleans, so. My yeah. wife just got her booster today and she, wow. yeah. So you could just go to CV, at least in New Jersey, they, they're doing it without telling anybody. You just sign up and you go there and they'll give it to you. Yeah, I went to Walgreens. They gave me my flu shot, but they weren't doing anything but boosters, so. Anyway, uh, but that's what's going on. And I'm doing, I, I'm on a bunch of podcasts, I'm doing, an oral history thing with Corky Steiner Saturday. So, uh, good luck getting a word in there. <laughs> no, it's supposedly I'm going to be just talking. I'm, you know, it's just like, I don't think it's an interview. He's, Corky's a great guy, you know? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Because he, is. He, uh, he said that we were talking just briefly today. He said he really, because um, he's been doing these things about the history of Kenner now, trying to get all that stuff for the museum center and stuff. He said that the, he realizes that uh, the designers didn't get enough, don't get enough credit for what they did for, for Kenner. You know, the marketing people and the salespeople always get more, like more of the accolades, but he's one that really recognizes what everybody did, so. Did I anyway. hear museum? Did I hear the word museum? Yeah, they're trying to do something with uh, at the the uh, Cincinnati Ch uh, Museum Center. They're trying. They're looking at doing a permanent collection of first Kenner toys, you know, because there's lots of them floating around. Wow, that would be an amazing idea and a great draw for the city. Yeah, so they're they're looking at it and then. Corky's work, he's done some work before he did some oral history stuff. So he's working on some more. It's, uh, and I don't know what, I don't know. He's, we're going to talk a little bit more tomorrow about who else he should, and I don't know who he's had interviews done with, but he's, he's asked me to, about who they should interview for, for this thing. So Tim will probably get a call. No, I already did it. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. So he's doing that stuff. So, and be Ben Sheehan's working with him. So we'll see. Jim, you said you needed another sculptor. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Paul Brook. I know he wasn't like Steve Geddes' old guard, but certainly notable and at Kenner for quite a long time. Yeah. We, what we were trying to do is get the the early the early ones. Got I don't it. know if he on Star Wars, although if he was there for any length of time, he probably did. I do have his number and I've got it some that I've gotten 
some, you know, some of them don't want Bob Queen and Bob Moore just aren't interested at all. It's like they they no longer uh, they don't consider that sculpting, I guess. And uh, but Steve's <laughs> Steve's doing lots of stuff. You don't see it very often, but he's been working on stuff. So he's willing to talk at least. I think people because yeah, it, this is way way off, but um, I find that Star Wars collectors and the fans that are into toy collecting and stuff, and the even the people that are into the movies more, really like meeting all the people that worked on things. You know, they they uh, they will line up to talk to. Uh, the voiceover people that do animation stuff or the puppeteers and things like that. So, uh, and on the toy end of it, um, you know, they just, they've really enjoyed just meeting you if you worked on something that they collect because it's just, you know, so it's kind of, a, and, the, and uh, most of the Comic-Cons have had, most of the guests are, they try to get movie people that, you know, actors and stuff. And uh, little by little, they're, they're looking and I think they're realizing they might be able to get people to come to meet toy designers and uh, people that worked on stuff that they played with. So it's kind of an interesting, it's, you know, they need new, new blood or old blood at this point, so. I think it's an appreciation now for the the, the, the whole reason the po our podcast was created was to thank the makers like you guys. And then before I turn it over to Ken to close things off, Tom, what are you gonna, what are you working on, and what are you gonna be working on? Are you showing up at any conventions with these guys? Who me? Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to be in Nashville with the other two, I think, in next next May, and the end of April, May with uh, Jim and Tim. But no, I, I uh, just teach on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. So that's all that's going on right now. Can I audit that class <laughs> remotely? Sure. Yeah. Send yeah. them the link, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. You know how that works? <laughs> yeah, I get that. That's funny. Guys, I cannot thank you enough for being willing to, to join us on uh, the forces behind Star Wars. So on behalf of Anthony, Demetrius, and, and all of our listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending time with us tonight. Yeah, thanks a bunch, guys. It's awesome to see you.